0: Hey, good evening. How many got a nap today? All right, so I expect you people not to be sleeping or napping during the study, okay? You've already had your nap today. Uh, I'm glad that you are here and you had a chance to rest a little bit. It's good to have the Lord today where we can do that. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you tonight, I want you to go ahead and open God's Word uh, just to, if you want to, just to the book of Matthew because we're going to be looking at some uh, the, the Gospels in just a moment. Uh, but let me uh, let me give you a little bit of an update on what 's happening right now uh in down at the life center just so you'll you 'll kind of know the flow of things going on uh eric t- tonight is is kind of a a handoff of, if you will it is chris 's last night uh at uh what they call house their Sunday night service and it's chris's last night and and eric's first night where they're they're going to kind of do a little handoff and having a a big party down there tonight and, and everything and and so uh after that chris will be coming up here to what i jokingly say to him is big church so whenever you see chris you'll start seeing him on wednesday nights you'll start seeing him on sunday nights you know just welcome him to big church all right and and uh that 's going to be an adjustment for him. I recognize that, and uh, so we you, you guys you know he's he's used to hanging out with with young people and that's all I'm going to say <laughs> um. <laughs> huh we're young and hard right we're young okay last Sunday night we were talking about we began to talk about the new testament we were talking about Kind of doing a little survey of the New testament, and we we basically were talking about the Gospels last Sunday night now, if you don't have an outline, there's still some out up here, and, and I'm sure in the back as well and We left off talking about the four gospels uh, we We asked the question, why four? Why are there four gospels and we We gave you three different reasons for four gospels, and so tonight I want to kind of pick up right there. And then go on talking about the rest, we won't get through the rest of the New Testament, but talk about the Gospels a little bit, the book of Acts, and Paul's letters, and then hopefully in one more session we'll complete the New Testament. Uh, So, let me pray with you, and then we're just going to go into the study. Uh, So would you join me as I pray? Father, we're mindful of the fact that tonight uh, it is a a great time in the life of Chris uh, to be able to move to a new part of ministry and a new challenge in ministry Uh, but it's also a hard time as he uh, moves away from uh, in essence from those kids that he has loved and poured his life into then I pray for him uh, and and for Jennifer Lord as they're just uh, trying to figure out what what it looks like now Um, I pray for Eric Lord, as he starts that new challenge and that new new opportunity. And Lord, as he is uh, excited about the future and trying to learn names and understand who everybody is and how everything works, uh, we we just pray for, for wisdom for him and just you continue to give him vision of of what the student ministry can and should be. And I pray for Ron, Lord, as he's trying to figure out the the next step in his life and for Allison and just such a time of transition for them I want to pray that your spirit would minister to them as well Uh, and you continue to give them um, just that sense of of your hand being on them and your direction in their life and father we all desire that we all need that sometimes it's more evident than others sometimes we think about it more than we do at other times but we all need your direction we all want and desire your help and so we come tonight asking for your help as we look at the, at the New Testament. Give us a, a deeper and a better understanding and appreciation of this book we often hold in our hands. Help us to understand the message ultimately to each of us. The message recorded through different individuals uh, for our good. Now may you help this teacher. And may the words be more than mine. And may your spirit work in such a way that Jesus is honored and glorified. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, last time we were talking about the synoptic gospels. Kind of left off there. didn't say a whole lot about it. So let me just uh, briefly talk about the synoptic gospels. And then we'll move on. I don't want to spend a lot of time here. But when we're talking about synoptic, this is the word. We're talking about the Gospels, and I think you've got this on your notes. you talk about the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The word synoptic means seeing together. If you don't have that on your notes, go ahead and put that on there. That's what that, that word means, seeing together. That Matthew, Mark, and Luke saw the story of Jesus somewhat together. They, they essentially are telling the same story from their perspective. They talk about some things that are different, but, but there are a lot of similarities between those first Three Gospels. They all have similarities in subject matter and, and even in sometimes exact wording uh, and, and other things that are, that are just very, very similar about backgrounds and information, etc. Now, it's one thing just to tell you that. It's another thing for you to be able to see it for yourself. And so what we're, I'm going to give you one example. In the book of Matthew, book of Matthew uh, chapter 9, look in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read verses 9 through 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. This is, of course, the same Matthew who wrote this gospel, Matthew. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Now, that's Matthew's account of what happened. Luke, or I'm sorry, Mark, tells us a very similar story. Mark chapter 2 verse 13. Just compare. You might even want to keep your finger there in Matthew so you can flip back and forth. In Mark chapter 2 verse 13 through 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, what's the first thing that we notice that's different in those stories? The name. Matthew and Levi. Uh, Levi was probably his given name, and Matthew was more than likely his apostolic name, the name that was given to him as he became a follower of Christ. And so we notice the change there, but essentially the story is the same. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Again, not an exact wording from what we see in Matthew, but very, very similar. They are, look at this word, they are seeing it together. Reporting, essentially, the same thing. And one more time in the book of Luke, chapter 5. Luke, chapter 5, verse 27 through 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Notice he uses his given name. "'Follow me,' Jesus said." And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet at Jesus. Uh, I'm sorry, held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Uh, notice he says tax collectors and others, rather than tax collectors and quote sinners. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? There's the word. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so it's, you can see now that there is a very obvious seeing together between these three Gospels, and that's just one example. Mark, on the other hand, is totally different. Mark writes his Gospel, and and sometimes what he writes resembles the three. Sometimes what he writes is similar. So maybe I shouldn't say it's totally different, but, but maybe the word would be very different. Uh, but Because Mark writes, sometimes it's, it's, it is similar, but many times, uh, I'm sorry, John. Uh, in many times, John, when he writes, he writes, and it's a different order of events. He writes about things that the other three don't mention. John, when he writes his gospel, uh, includes some things that, that you won't find in other places. John uh, was more theological in his writing. The other three are, are pretty much telling the story of Jesus about his humanity. John is really speaking about Jesus from the perspective of his deity—that he is really God in flesh. In in the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see a lot of parables, especially in the in the Gospel of Matthew, lots of parables. But in in John, no parables. John doesn't include parables. He he doesn't include the story of Nicodemus. Uh, uh, I, I'm sorry. Uh, he has the store of Nicodemus, and John just has things that others don't have. For example, there's those seven "I am" statements in the in the Book of John, where Jesus said, "I am the door," "I am the bread," "I am the resurrection." Those kind of things, those teachings, he has those that the other three don't have. So, uh, just just a summary of why it's important to study all the Gospels. You have the synoptic seen together, and, and then you have separate from that. The Gospel of John, and together they tell the story. They tell the story about the greatest man that ever lived. They tell the story about the person that some of them got to follow. Now, let me ask you a question. I've done a lot of talking already. Let me ask you a question. Of those four writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which which ones of those were Apostles who followed Jesus, Matthew and John. What about Luke and Mark, or Mark and Luke? How did how did well, let's let's ask you this? Who was Mark? Okay. What was his full name? Well, we say full name, but how was he known in the book of Acts? John Mark. John Mark. He was associated with somebody that that knew Jesus. John Mark, we call him Mark, or or the gospel is Mark. He was associated with Paul. Now Luke, and, and if we had time, we could kind of dig into this a little bit. But Luke, when he writes... He was not an apostle either, and yet he wrote about the story of Jesus, and the Bible says that he researched. He did research to understand who Jesus was. But Luke had a close association with, some, with one of the apostles as well. Who was that? Peter. Luke had a close association with, with Peter. He uh, probably got a lot of information. I'm sorry, I think I got those backwards. John Mark was associated with Peter. Luke was associated with Paul. I apologize. Uh, I got those two backwards. Now, there's four New Testament eras that I want you to know about. Let me me just try to... uh, Four eras. Do you have this on your uh, notes? Okay. Four eras that are important. First of all, the one that we've talked about last Sunday and a little bit tonight... You have the Gospels. The the Gospels era. And then you have after that, and of course the, the story of the Gospels is all about Jesus. Then after the after the, the Gospel era era, you have the church era. And this was primarily we would call the book of Acts especially Acts chapter 1 through 9, Acts 1 through 9, or or 1 through 8, Acts 1 through 8. Then we have the missionary era, and this is Acts 9. Stay with me, because this is going to help you understand the whole New Testament right here in a minute. Nine through, what's, how many chapters are in Acts? 28, I believe. I got that right? Yeah. And then you have what I'm calling just simply the final era. And this would be the book of Revelation. Now, get all, all four of those things down. Then I want to ask you a question or two. So in the Gospels era, you're talking about Jesus, of course. In the church era, it's the body of Christ. The focus is the body of Christ during the church era, Acts chapters 1 through 8, the formation of the church. And I'll get into that in just a moment, a little bit. And then you have the missionary era, which is chapters 9 through 28. And right here is where you and I are living, in what we would call the missionary era. Now, my question for you, and talk to a neighbor about this, what about the rest of the New Testament? If I were to say to you, this is an outline of the New Testament, this, these are the four eras of the New Testament, the question you need to deal with is, okay, what about Romans and First and Second Corinthians and all of those other books? Where, where do they fit? So talk to a neighbor and tell me where they fit. Go ahead. Look at your, look at your notes. Look at your eras here. Where do all the other letters fit? All right. There are really only those four eras to describe the New Testament. You break it down to those four eras. Where do the letters of Paul and the general letters, where do all of those fit in these eras? All right, let me say church. All right, any other suggestions? Think they overlap? How many many like the word overlap, that you'd vote for overlap? All right. Any other suggestions? Yes, they are instructions about how Christians should live. But what time frame? Where do they fit in this time frame? I understand why you, some of you gave the answers that you gave and I know that's a little hard to see perhaps where you are but let's think about this for a moment because this is very important understanding that the rest of the New Testament the Gospels, of course they would not be in the Gospel era Those are just, that's just the story of Jesus but the letters of Paul and the general letters written by others here's what you need to understand they might have occurred during this time, but they really belong here in the missionary era. Because this era basically just deals with the formation of the church, the New Testament church. When I'm talking about the church here, I'm not talking about, you know, Mount Air Baptist Church and Mount Pisgah Baptist Church and all that. I'm talking about the church, capital C church. And so Acts chapters 1 through 8 explain the church, how it was formed, how it came into existence. Now watch this. What you have here and here is basically historical narrative. You have the history of Jesus in the Gospels. You have the history of the church. It's historical narrative. Then during the the missionary era, now certainly chapters 9 through 28 is historical narrative as well in the book of Acts. But, watch this, the missionary era does not end until the end of the world. That's why I said, hint, hint, we are living in the missionary era. His final words, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He said, go to the world. We're living in the missionary era. And when Paul, now now, this is where I'm going to bring it to a point, When Paul, when James, when Peter, when John wrote these letters, they were writing letters that were primarily interpretive. Interpreting for them, interpreting for individuals and for churches, interpretive letters about what it means to be a church or who Jesus is. And so the letters of the New Testament fit in right here, really, between the missionary era and and the final era. Uh, this is where we fit in as well. Does that make sense? That's where we fit in as well. Okay. Now, if you understand the big picture, here's the four eras, the Gospels of the Church, the Missionary Era, and the final era, of course, is the Book of Revelation, how it all is going to come to an end. We've talked about the Gospels. Let's now go back and talk a little bit about the Book of Acts, and I'm going to do this very briefly because we've done that on Wednesday nights, and I don't want to be Repetitive, So I'm just going to talk to you very briefly about Acts and, and mention a couple of things, and then we're going to talk about the writings of Paul. Okay? Uh, first of all, the book of Acts. The book of Acts describes the formation. Write this down somewhere. I think there's a blank there. It describes the formation of the church in the first 30 years. The first 30 years. So when we look at our notes here and we talk about the church, Acts 1 through 8, that's describing, Acts 1 through 8 is describing the first Thirty years of the church. So Acts describes that formation time. It also tells about the spread of Christianity across the Roman Empire. Here's the missionary era. Alright, it talks about the spread of of Christianity across the, the Roman Empire, thus that missionary era influence. And I told you on Wednesday nights here not long ago, uh, that the gospel spread in two spread in two distinct ways let 's see if you remember any of that uh, in the book of Acts, the Gospel spread across the world in in two very distinct ways. What were those two ways? anybody remember that that caused the spread that caused the spread absolutely and I'm, but how did it spread I, and I, it went from From one thing to another thing. I'm trying to give you a hint here. went from one thing to another. How did the gospel spread in the book of Acts? I'm sorry. Everybody said it at the same time. What would you say, Peggy? No? Right? Right, right? Everybody's kind of... Yeah, I know you're kind of hitting around it. Uh, Let me give it to you again, just in case you weren't here or or I didn't make it very clear, there was, first of all, a geographical expansion. Remember that? Jamie, it went from what to what? You just remember, okay. You remember geographical. Okay. It went from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, right? Acts one There There's that geographical expansion that in the book of Acts, we, we see in this missionary era, in the book of Acts, that the gospel does not stay in one place. That the gospel moves, and it moves just like Jesus said it would in Acts one eight. It moves from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So that's their that's the uh, geographical expansion. Then I gave you this big word, and, and it's soteriological expansion. You remember that word? You remember that, Jamie? So soteriological expansion means this. Not only did the gospel move geographically, but this is this is probably just as big or maybe even bigger the gospel moved from Jew to Gentile salvation changed those who qualify for salvation I should say those who can experience salvation those who can experience the grace of God it moved from Jew to Gentile but there there was some other group right in between them do you remember we talked about I think that last Wednesday night who I think I heard it Samaritans Jew to half-breed Samaritans. They were half-Gentile, half-Jew to to Gentile. So Jew, Samaritan, Gentile. There's that soteriological expansion. Uh, The person that God used to bring about all of that more than any other person was a man by the name of Paul. Uh, Paul, write this down somewhere on your notes. I don't think you have an outline or, or a note sheet for this, but write this down. Paul was instrumental in defining Christianity. Paul was instrumental in defining Christianity. I was talking briefly to Allison after church, and she was talking about the book of Romans. She and I think Jamie are studying the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, it's kind of a tough book to understand, but in that book, Paul is essentially defining. Here's what it means to be a Christian. Now, folks, listen to me. Listen to me. We've grown up knowing that, right? We, this, is, this is second-hand stuff to all of us. But when you were in the first century and you were a Jew and somebody suggested somebody other than a Jew could experience salvation, that was like, what are you talking about? And, and then if you, if you began to try to discern, oh, okay, well, l- let's just suppose that a, a non-Jew could be a Christian. What would it take to become one? Again, we know the answer to that, don't we? have known the answer since Sunday school, since little boys and little girls, but they didn't know that answer then. In fact, in, in Acts chapter 15, you can just write this down, we won't talk, talk a lot about it, but in Acts chapter 15, that was exactly the question that was examined. It was called the Jerusalem Council, and in Acts chapter 15, at the Jerusalem Council, here was the question, what, what does it take to be a Christian? What does it take to be a Christian? And I've told you before, but let me just make sure, because some of you haven't heard me say this. The Jews, who would, who would somewhat agree that Gentiles could become a follower, they would say this. In order for you to become a Christian, you first have to become a Jew. You've got to be, you've got to, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow the Jewish law. You've got to become A Jew. Now, of course, they can't become a Jew by birth, but they could by choice. In Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, they had a big showdown about what does it mean to be a Christian? How does one become a follower of Christ? Paul was one of the instrumental people in that time who, at the very beginning, early days of Christianity, said, I know that Jesus was a Jew. I know that all of his first followers were Jews, but I am here to tell you that becoming a Christian is open to anybody and you don't have to become a Jew first. Remember, when Paul was saved, uh, God appointed him to be a missionary to the Gentiles. Right? Okay, now. So we talk about the Gospels, we talk about the book of Acts. Now we want to talk about those letters that kind of fit in this gap right here. The letters of the New Testament. Let me, let me stop for a moment and see if you have questions because I've been all over the, the board with lots of different things. Before we start talking about Paul and his writings, let me see if you have any questions. Yes, sir. So, soteriological. Soteriological. Let me spell it for you. I have to look in my notes to make sure. S-O-T... E R I O, and then logical. So it's S O T E R I O L O G I C A L. Soteriological. This is basically the doctrine of salvation. That's another word for it. The doctrine of salvation: who can be saved and how are they saved? That's that's soteriological. Um, okay. Let's talk about the writings of Paul. I like this. I hope that you'll like it as well. The Pauline epistles were primarily interpretive. I alluded to that a moment ago. They explain who Jesus was and how you become a follower of Jesus. His letters were intended for widespread use. Primarily, they were not written... Well, not primarily, simply, they were not written to be part of the New Testament. I said that last week, I believe. That Paul was writing letters to individuals and to churches. In fact, you've got a place there on your notes to put this in. The letters were often prompted by problems, by questions, by situations that needed somebody to give an answer, somebody to give counsel. And so Paul would write to individuals and he would write to churches. The letters written to churches are what? Help me with this. You, you, you can fill this out. If you, just, if you just look in your New Testament, you can figure this out. What are the letters written to churches? Try to say them in order. Romans, Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Verse Second Thessalonians. So those are the letters that Paul wrote to churches. Then he also wrote letters to individuals. What are the letters that he wrote to individuals? Verse Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. The letters of Paul are in your Bible. This is kind of an important little note. The letters of Paul in your Bible are not there in chronological order. It was not like, okay, he wrote Romans first, and then he wrote first and Second Corinthians. They are not in chronological order. Uh, the first one that he wrote probably was either. there's a toss-up. Flip a coin on this. There's a toss-up between First Thessalonians and maybe Galatians, where perhaps the first two letters that he wrote not sure which one was first. Uh, I've got First Thessalonians down as 47 to 50 AD. Uh, some would say Galatians was written perhaps earlier. Also, I told you they were not listed chronologically. Paul's letters are primarily listed from longer to shorter. If you think through that, you'll see that Romans has 16 chapters for his first letter. Philemon has how many chapters? One. So his letters primarily are listed in the New Testament from longer to shorter. Several of his letters are written from prison. Tell me which one those are. What letters did he write from prison? Ephesians is a f- one. Philippians. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Now, there's one more. Primarily, we, by the way, when you look this up, oftentimes you'll just see those four, but there's a fifth one if you, if you really consider it. And that is 2 Timothy. The last letter that he wrote was 2 Timothy. He was in prison when he wrote that letter, and he was about to die. Uh, so you have those five uh, prison epistles or prison letters. Now, tell you what I'd like to do. How much time do we have here? Okay. Let me talk to you just for a few minutes about Paul's theology. What did he write about in these letters? I told you they were primarily interpretive. What did he write when he wrote these letters? What were some of the major themes in his letters? I'm going to give you three things. I'm not sure. Do you have a place on your notes for this? Okay. Uh, I'm going to give you three things that describe his theology. If you were to kind of lump all of his letters together, you would see these three things occurring and reoccurring many times. Throughout the letters that he wrote, whether he was writing to Philemon, an individual, or to Philippians, a church, doesn't matter. You'll see these three themes interwoven throughout much of his writings. Here's the first one: justification by faith. Justification, of course, means made just as if you've never sinned. It's a common way to say that. Justification is talks about forgiveness that God offers, and Paul says forgiveness or justification is by faith. Justification, by the way, is a legal, has a legal tone to it. You're, you're made right. You're a sinful man, but you're made right before God. And Paul says that's only through faith. Let me show you a couple of examples of this. Uh, go to Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Romans chapter 3. Verse 28, for we maintain, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith, apart from observing the law. That's a key scripture right there. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from, apart from the law, observing the law. Now, let me ask you a question about Paul's upbringing. Is that the way Paul grew up? Is that what he believed growing up? No. What did he believe growing up? What about the law? Yeah. If there was anybody who was dedicated to keeping the law, if there was anybody who thought he gained favor by keeping the law, it was Paul. In fact, in his own testimony, he tells you, you know, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I asked to the law, I was blameless. Paul believed that the way you gained favor with God was through observing the law until he met Jesus Christ and his life was radically and totally changed. And then the one thing that he wanted to communicate with nearly everybody that he wrote to, the one thing that he kept hitting over and over and over again And I'm not saying it's in every letter, but but the theme of it is kind of woven through the letter. The one thing that he kept talking about is, we maintain that a man is justified by faith and not by observing the law. Why do you think he was so adamant about that? He, He was blinded by it for so long. That's good. What else? He was a Jew... Right. He was a Jew. Jews didn't believe that. He was passionate about it. He wanted his Jewish brothers to know the truth. What else? He knew there was no other way. That's why, I think it's in in Romans 10, 1, where I quoted it a week or two ago, where Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they would be saved. My prayer to God, my heart's desire, is that they would understand that salvation comes through faith and not by observing the law. Can I say to you tonight, there's only one way to God. Can I remind you what some of you already know, but perhaps one or two of you, perhaps, I don't know, maybe somebody needs to know this, you will never, ever, 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 ever have a real relationship with God based on your observance of the law, based on you trying to be a good person and keep all the all the rules and all the regulations. Don't, let me, let me, don't take my word for it. Show me, Or let me show you one other verse in Scripture while you're in Romans. Let's just one more example. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. However, let's start in verse 4. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trust God who justifies the wicked, his what? His faith is credited as righteousness. Paul was passionate about this, saying over and over again that a person's works and a person's deeds are never sufficient for salvation. So that's one of the themes of of Paul that you find in his letters, justification by faith. The second theme that you find interwoven throughout Paul's letters are this, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. The preeminence of Jesus Christ. What, do you, what, what does that word preeminence indicate to you? The preeminence of Jesus. What does that mean? Yeah. He, he was present before the earth. And that is one of the reasons he's preeminent. Anybody else? What, what does that word preeminent mean? The preeminence of Jesus Christ. Who said that? What would you say? Okay, absolutely. He's better than who? (laughs) Anybody, everybody. can, Can I give it to you, a very simple definition? There is nobody like Jesus. And there's nobody who can do for you what Jesus can do. He's preeminent. He's the only one. He's, he's the only one that can do for you what you need. And, and so what you find in the writings of Paul, and this, this makes sense when you think about it. If Paul says that justification is only by faith, it's faith in Jesus Christ, therefore the other theme that would be woven throughout everything that he wrote would be this. Jesus Christ and his death on the cross has freed us from the power of sin and restored us to relationship with God. Through his resurrection, we have victory over death. And so Paul interweaves that throughout all of his writings. Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is central to everything Paul wrote. In fact, look in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians chapter 2. Verse 20. Familiar scripture, but maybe uh, you'll look at it in a different context. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul said. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by, what's that next word? Not by observing the law. The life I live in the body, I've stopped living trying to observe the law. The life I live in the body, I live by faith. Faith in what? In the Son of God, Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, everything that Paul believed was based on Jesus Christ. He was preeminent in his life and in his writings. Let me give you one other example. Back in Romans again, Romans chapter 9. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile the same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him for, what's that word? Everyone, Jew and Gentile, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Alright, so, here's the big question. What's the first big theme? What's the first theme I told you in his writings? What's the first one? Justification. Justification by, by faith. What's the second one? preeminence of Christ. So, here's the third. And here's my question for you. If it's justification by faith, if Christ is preeminent, what's the role of the law? You don't have to answer it yet. What you think about that? That's the third big theme in Paul's writings. If you want to put that down, number three, the role of the law. Remember, number one is justification by faith. By, and he emphasizes in Romans, you're not justified by observing the law. You're justified by, by faith in Christ. So a logical question would be this. Then what is the purpose of the law? And here's the answer. It's in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 verse 21 Galatians chapter 3 verse 21 I love this scripture because it I remember reading it and, and the light bulb going on for me I don't remember when but I just remember reading it. it's like that makes sense I get it now but but Galatians chapter 3 verse 21 Let, let's go to verse 19. What then was the purpose of the law? Paul is writing this. He says, what was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed, notice that's capital S, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Now, verse 21, read very carefully verse 21 through 25. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Read that again. But the Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised, promised by God beforehand, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, don't miss uh, miss that, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law, here's the key verse, so the law was put in charge to lead us Christ so that we might be justified by faith that's all that's one of those verses you ought to mark in your bible it's just such a key theological verse so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith now that faith has come we are no longer under the supervision of the law so verse 24 puts it all together for us so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now, now Pastor Keith, how does all that work? Well, it's basically this. How do you know that you're a sinner? Huh? It's the law. You know you're a sinner. Now, now come on. You're, you're a good person, right? Elaine, you're a good person, right? How, how do you know that you're a sinner? It's because when I read the law and I try to do what the law says for a while I may make progress for a while I may do it how many How many could agree though but eventually you're going to mess up uh, you you can't keep the law perfectly now if salvation hinged on if salvation hinged on your ability to keep the law perfectly what problems do we have we're all doomed aren't we We're doomed. Absolutely doomed. If the way that we get to heaven is by observing the law and keeping it perfectly, then we're doomed. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. No, see, here's the way it works, Pastor, because God's going to grade on a curve. And some of us are going to keep the law better than others. And I'm just hoping I'm in the the top half. Right? Because those, when he grades on the curve, those who are in the top group, then we're going to slide in. No, you're not. Because the book of James says, if you, broke, if you have broken just one law, you have broken all of it. How many, how, many, how many laws does it take for you to break before you become a lawbreaker? One. How many laws do you have to sin before you become a sinner? One. So Paul, in his writings, he had three things he kept writing about over and over. One of them is this. Justification is by faith, not by observing the law. Number two, Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is the only one who can offer us salvation. Number three, because of his... Let me go back number two. Because of his death on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, he's the only one that can offer us salvation. Number three, the law is not to be thrown away. The law was God's tool to help us understand that we are sinners who need a Savior. The law was given to show us how deeply we need a Savior. It's a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Okay, uh, I think we can stop right there, and uh, that would be a good place for us to end. Hope you'll be back next time. and we'll, we'll, we'll try to finish up, perhaps, hopefully, next week or two, we'll finish up the New Testament, and uh, then we'll, we'll move on. Don't say, I did not let you out early. It is 6.56. Hey, let, let's pause for a moment. I'm, just, I'm being very, very serious. Let's pause for a moment. I want you to pray. I want you to pray this prayer. I want you to bow your heads and I want you to pray this prayer. God, I thank you that I can know you by faith rather than by my faithfulness. God, I thank you and together we thank you. That we can have a relationship with you and we can know you by faith in Jesus rather than by our faith or our faithfulness to your law God you are gracious to us we do not deserve that but your love compelled you to do that and we thank you for your one and only son our savior our substitute our sacrifice it's in his name I pray